My career sucks. Sex just isn't the same. What's my purpose? Where did this fat come from? My relationship is killing me. I'll never be happy. My debt is piling up. I'll never find love. Why can't I be like other gay guys? Hey guys, it's time to get a grip, stop whining, make a bold move, and do something amazing with your 40-plus gay life. Let's get to the show with your tell-it-like-it-is host, Rick Clemens, who does his best to never act like a dick or a diva unless you act like one first. So guys, let's get real. We know we're all aging and things are going to happen in life and some of us are going to, I don't know, we're going to get fatter, we're going to get older, we're going to get wiser. And yes, at some point, we're all going to face bigger challenges like medical issues and losing a partner. But what do you do when all those things happen? Especially when like, hey, I thought things were going well. And then, so to speak, the person that's most significant in your life is gone. I don't want to be a downer here during the holidays, but let's get real, man. Sometimes these things happen. And if we're not planning for it, it's even worse. And then other things show up and you're like, okay, enough is enough already. And the reason I'm having this conversation today is our guest reached out to me and shared a little bit about himself and said, I'm a listener. I'm a fanboy. I listen to you all the time. And he didn't really say all that. Well, he did say he did listen, but, um, and he touched my heart just in what he shared. And we haven't really had a conversation about grief and loss on this podcast. And I felt like for us guys over 40, it's time to have that conversation. So I know he's going to share himself and you're going to love him. He got that, he got, he's got that loveless Southern accent going. So some of y'all are going to just fall head over heels in love with him just hearing his voice. So um, his name is Jason Arnold and Jason, I'm really excited and privileged and happy that you were willing as a listener to say, sure, why not? Let's, let's have this conversation. So thanks for being here today, man. Thanks Rick. And I am definitely a fanboy. <laughs> Well, now my heart's real full, you know, bless your heart, you know, um, I, I'm going to revert back to uh, talking to you. Don't don't be surprised if suddenly my old Southern drawl starts to show back up because I, I you and I were talking about that. I lived in the South for quite a while and um, worked in Atlanta, Georgia, where you live. And I went to school in Tennessee and Texas and Arkansas and Oklahoma. So every once in a while, the alls come out and I'm like, where did that come from? I am a California boy. I'm not supposed <laughs> to talk like that anymore. But anyway. But um, again, man, I am really looking forward to this conversation because you had some pretty big things happen in your life, um, not only for you personally, but in the relationship that you were in. So let's kind of start where it all began. You fell in love with your Prince Charming and everything was wonderful, right? It was at first. And he was, you know... Part of what I love about your podcast is the fact that after the age of 40, you and I met Bo when I was 41 mm. and I had lived in Houston and moved to Atlanta. And I was joking with a buddy of mine that I knew when I moved to Atlanta, I was going to meet, I knew in my heart I was going to find love after years of single life and dating. And let's be honest, dating after 40 is not all cracked up to be fun, but yeah. um he would check every box off on the list. The only thing, and I joked with him when we first started dating, is I never said I didn't. I, I never said I didn't want to meet somebody that had cancer because he was going through. He had just finished chemo and radiation when we first started dating, and 
I became very well versed in medical jargon and medical power of attorney and all these things you need to be able to do, advanced directives, crap that we don't want to talk about, right. but we need to talk about because you find yourself um, kind of like what I was telling you, you we were doing his uh, surgery on an ostomy reversal because of the colorectal cancer he was going through and he stopped breathing and we were not even but a year into our relationship, maybe not even quite a year. And I had to have a moment of, okay, do you walk away from this? Is this too much for you to handle or do you push forward? And anybody that ever met my late Bo, he was a life force unlike anything else. He walked into a room and he got everybody's attention. He was charming and funny and every positive word you could think of. And on our first date, I tried to post, I tried to postpone our date mm. and he wound up pushing me. Hey, I want to meet you. I want to meet your friends. I want to go out. And I was like, God, this guy is pushy as hell. I don't want to deal with this. Um, but on our first date, I knew when he walked me to my car and he kissed me, I was like, I have to know this man. And he literally changed. He not just changed my life. He turned my life upside down, inside out. And I am a totally different man now, eight years later than I was beforehand. That Kinda is impactful. the power that that man had. Well, it's impactful when you have somebody in your life like that, too. I was laughing because... <laughs> I kind of did the same thing to my, my now husband. I'm like, we met, so we met the week of nine 11 and literally like nine 11 happened. And oh, then we man. met the, that we, our first conversation was like the day after two days after something like that. And I knew, I knew as I was talking to him, like, I want to meet this guy, you know, I want to meet him. And he wasn't feeling good. And he was kind of sick over that week. And I'm like, Oh, come on. You can meet me. We're just go to dinner. I'm, I pushed and I, I pushed and I pushed. So I was your beau, you know, I was like, come on, man, let's just get <laughs> together. Right. And then I met him and there was this inkling within me, like this guy, he's a force. He's still a force. He's a beautiful yep. guy. He's just, he's such a beautiful being. Why he's with me, I have no fucking clue. I'm serious. I'm like, wait, what are you doing with me, buddy? But um, um, it is interesting to see those sort of things happen. And then to see yourself, I mean, as I'm listening to you um, talk through this, Jason, to see yourself step into a space of, okay, well, this isn't what I thought I would be signed up for. My husband, he always said I, he wanted kids, but I was fairly freshly out of my divorce. I was only a about a year and a half, two years beyond it. And for him to step into that was, you know, it's not as severe as cancer, but there's kind of like you bring your stuff with you. I mean, we all do, right? But it was interesting. So you have that experience. He's coming out of cancer, so to speak. And then what, what was the next thing that started to prevail? Besides you fell in love and you're like, give me the ring, give me the ring, give me the ring. <laughs> he we actually, once we got past the reversal surgery, um, things really kind of, we had some really good, couple of good years there where mm -hmm. we got to grow as a couple. We got to travel. We got to combine, you know, 
middle-aged gay man. I had two dogs. He had a dog. We had a pack and we rescued another dog and we got into the day-to-day life. You know, it was so powerful with him. I've Mm -hmm. never felt that level of connection with another person. And being over 40 and dating, I, I never knew my real father and Therapies helped with those issues, but one of the things, Bo was the first person I trusted, and mm. I was pretty transient with my job. I moved wherever you know my career was going to advance, and when I moved to Atlanta, it was this is going to be a blip on the road too. Right. And then now, eight years later, it's home, and Bo gave me a home. Literally, mm. created the first time I'd been somewhere for longer than a year to two years, and. Wow. We got into the things Rick of doing um, holidays. I mean, Thanksgiving. I have pictures of us from our first Thanksgiving when he and he was not a cook or a baker by any means, but he learned to make an apple pie, and he was so proud of the life that we started building. And then cancer reared its ugly head again. This time for me. Um, it was a blessing. And I say that because Bo was my teacher. He prepared me for everything that was going to happen. Um, as a matter of fact, we saw the exact same oncologist. We saw the exact same radiologist. And when we met with our radiologist for me, for the first time, after we found out I had cancer, she was like, what in the hell are you doing here? Because we, she was used to seeing us at appointments for him. Right. Yeah, And one of the most powerful things, and it has stuck with me all these years, is um, she said later on in my treatment, and I will tell you, this, it got very rough, and mm. we were sitting there, and I was debating ending treatment. When I say it was a tornado, and I felt like if I stood perfectly still, nothing would happen. But from July of 2018, when I got diagnosed, when I started treatment on September 4th, I had four surgeries. I had, because I had stage four head and neck cancer, I had to have a mask <sighs> made of my head. So when you go into the radiation, you hear the sounds of a door that is about a foot and a half thick, close and lock. And all you hear is this machine go around your head and you can, I could smell the burning of uh, skin and you hear this zapping noises, but our radio, I got very, very sick within a month into treatment and wanted to stop because I had to have a feeding tube. And because with head and neck cancer, you can't swallow, you can't, you have to, I had to take medication to numb my throat so I could eat. So I went from being a healthy 250 bear guy by the time treatment was done to 179 pounds and you could see my ribs. So you, you went from being a bear you went from being a bear to an otter just say it like it is buddy <laughs> yes i was too hairy to be a twink that's for sure um <laughs> oh. but during that time you know bo prepared me bo was a joker mm. so when he would go to the chemo rooms he would always turn all the signs upside down or do something that the staff would know he had been there 
And when I got there, he was like, okay, so if you wind up being what we called it was a three a day mm-hmm. and you get treatment on Tuesday by Friday, you're definitely sick. Right. And I was a three dayer and you know, the vomiting, because when you have a feeding tube and you're going through that level, they don't want you to vomit through your mouth because right. of the radiation burn. And there was a moment, honest to God, Rick, where I had gone in, the treatment got so sick, I lost complete control of, I was vomiting. I was vomiting so hard that I used the bathroom on myself and was feeling about as disgusting as you can possibly feel. And mm-hmm. he is helping me get into our shower. And I'm sitting in the bottom of the shower crying, saying, I don't know that I can do this. I don't want to do this. And he's like, but I need you here. Wow. And I'm like, you know, there's something to be said for love. Love is when the man you're with is not seeing you look your best and you're going yeah. out on town and he's happy to have you on his arm. It's He's literally sponging you off and helping you get showered to change clothes to yep. put you to bed. Yeah, that's... That is truly true love. Trust me. It's, it, it's hard. It is very hard. I had a dear friend of mine that said she was single during this time. And she's like, you know, I really want to meet somebody and I want to have what you have. And I said, for better, for worse is a crapshoot. And are you prepared for the worst? Because we right. always in our mind have the Walt Disney fantasies of our prince is going to come in on a white horse and save us. And, kiss this and life is good. But what happens after you get on that damn horse and ride off? Right. It's when the reality mm-hmm. kicks in. Mm-hmm. I remember, I remember. So let's see. I'd have to, I'd have to look at my phone, but I, I believe it was 2019. It was either 2019 or 2018 that I had a stroke. And I remember being in, in the ER and it wasn't like hard to, that it wasn't that sort of thing. I didn't lose a lot of, I, I had a, what they call an ocular stroke. So I lost sight in one eye, par, partial sight. And I remember sitting in that ER and he had got me to the hot, my husband had got me to the hospital and he had got me in there and they're in the ER and he's with me and they're like, sir, you're going to have to step out. And I'm like, I don't want him to step out. And I remember that look he gave me. And it was one of those moments that it was one of those moments that I realized how, how much I love that man. Yeah. And I think he felt the same thing because it was, you didn't know if that might be the last thing you ever saw, you know? Yep. And um, like, I was very lucky and there's been moments where, you know, he's been deathly sick and you're right. Those are the moments <laughs> Yes, yeah, sex and all this other stuff is really great. Let, let's just be honest, right? But when your partner or somebody is standing there holding your hand or ensuring that you can get in the shower or they're helping you as you, you know, are throwing up all this garbage that's in your system, it's, you know what love really is. And you you do. And it. our radiologist told us when I decided to go back into treatment and wrap it up, um, she was sitting there telling us, she said, you know, I've known couples that have been married 30 plus years. They could barely handle it when one of them got sick, let alone for both of them to get sick. Yep. 
she said, that's a testament to you guys, because what we had was each other. At the end of the day, we had that, what you had with, have with your husband, you, that one person, you know, and I saw that, you know, I had one hospitalization um, and I went to go to the bathroom and I got sick in the bathroom. And because of the radiation, I got a massive nosebleed. It looked like a scene from Carrie in the bathroom and I'm on the floor vomiting and I could barely get to the cord and I go back, I get all this and the nurse comes in. She goes, Oh shit. <laughs> you know, it's a good sign when the nurse says, Oh shit. And so I right. go back into the, they're waiting to admit me and Bo sees me come in. I've got blood all over my hospital gown. And he's like, what the fuck? You just went to go pee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, what? and you know, he, he was my comfort and I finished treatment. He was there when I finished radiation. We rang the bell. He took my picture. He was in my picture when I finished chemo. Um, and that was February of 2019. And our hope was that we would, you know, have this, get our life back on track. And July, he had had some health issues, which is not uncommon with cancer. Mm-hmm. You know, you get... Right neuropathy in your legs or other such things and so he was having some mobility issues he was really tired um but he had a lot of external health issues related to the cancer i mean he had this was his second cancer he'd had lymphoma mm. before that wow and he was his family had a uh, place at the beach and he had gone down there that was his that place was where he got revitalized. He could come back. He could handle life. He just needed to be at the ocean and reboot and come back. Mm-hmm. And the doctor called our oncologist called and said, we need you to get you to come in because we, we did some blood work and we went in and he sat, we were sitting there and Bo and I were in the room together and I was like, it's okay, babe, whatever happens, you know, right. And he came in and he said, you've got acute myeloid leukemia. Wow. So how many, so how many years have you guys been together at this point? That was 2019. We'd been together five years. Wow. Almost five years. So you guys had gone and through a lot in a very short amount of time. A lot. Wow. And they were like, we're referring you to this hospital in Atlanta. And you, I mean, we basically, it was a whirlwind again, this time we were like, okay, you, they were, you have to go in the hospital immediately. We're going to be aggressive if we've got a chance to fight it. And he spent 35 days in the hospital and my best gay flew down from Iowa to stay at my house, stay at our house. Um, and took care of our dog so I could go to work. I had just gone back to work in March. So I'd only been at work back at work four months. And here we are, you know, he he literally had days, Rick, where he would call me at night and be like, babe, why didn't you come see me today? And I was like, sweetie, I was there for two hours. Did you not notice that I brought your laundry that's on the chair? And he's like, why didn't you wake me up? And I was like, honey, you were so out of it. And right. I shared this story on Facebook. I'm not a religious person, but I'm very spiritual. And during one of these visits, I had gone to go get both some ice. And there was a lady 
in the break room and she was crying when I walked in. And it's one of those, okay, this is odd. I don't know what to do. And I said, are you okay? And she said, I just found out my partner had six months to live. Mm. And instinctively I hugged her and I said, I'm here, you know, told her we were talking about Bo and we were talking about her partner. And I asked her, I said, can I give you a hug? You know, and she just stood there and we embraced and she cried and um, I helped her make coffee. And right. I told her, you know, we had a brief conversation and I, it was one of those moments of, okay, this isn't just happening to me. This happens in this is ever in this whole leukemia ward. All this is happening mm-hmm. to other families. Right. And again, Bo was such a clown. He would leave notes on the door because he'd walk the floor and he'd say, I'm gone fishing for good platelets. Mm. Um, <laughs> if you're looking for me, you know, he would deliberately walk the hallways with his gown open in the back so he could show his ass to get a rise out of the nurses and he just was that kind of guy and we were told in december that they felt we had that it was just not recoverable Mm. so this was december 2019 um and kind of like what you were talking about with your husband i had a conversation with his doctor and I was upset because Bo called me at work and said, Hey, he called, but I was in the middle of something. I wasn't able to take his call. Then he texted me. Right. He's like, I'm dying. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Why are you sending mm-hmm. that? You know? Um, and then I finally got in touch. I left work immediately, got home. And we, he was, as you can imagine, just, he's like, he, the doctors told me to get my affairs in order. And I being the overprotective because I became Bo's protector at all costs. I dealt with all the things he didn't want to deal with so he could focus on being just getting healthy. And I called the doctor and three days later, he called me back and I said, you know, why the hell did you bother to tell him he's dying without me? I literally worked 15 minutes. I could have been there. This was a conversation you were going to have with him why did you not include me right why did he have to hear that news by himself three days before christmas because mm-hmm. Bo is a huge christmas i mean rick that man was goofy as hell he literally put a christmas tree on our screened in porch that had toilet seats tampons and beer cans he mm-hmm. called it his redneck christmas tree so he would light up anything that stood still. Um, and it took the sail out, you know, it took the wind out mm-hmm. of his sail. And we were told to get to Texas. You know, if there's anything that can be done, we fought and got there. And we flew out on February 29th, 2020, right before everything got locked down for COVID. Wow. And we were we were going out there for a consultation. We were supposed to fly back on Thursday. It was Bo, his brother, and myself. And his brother had already been tested. He knew he was a bone ma- a marrow match. If we could get him healthy enough, he could be the donor, which is huge in leukemia to find somebody that is that perfect of a match. Like even 
friends were going to be tested. Anybody that we could, you know, everybody was stepping up to the plate for it. Right. And Wednesday, we had, I had gone to the hotel. He had gotten out of the hospital. They did a, a CT scan the day before, and they found he had a brain bleed. Mm. So the doctor calls me and tells me, you have to get him back to the hospital now. Wow. If he gets on a plane, he there's a chance he will have a massive stroke or this brain he'll bleed out. He will not survive to get the plane down. Hmm. So we go back and we're in intensive care. And there was nowhere for me to sit in this particular room. So I slept on the floor. Hmm. And there was a beautiful nurse there by the name of Bonnie. And she so this is Thursday and we're delaying flights and everything. And we've got people watching our dogs in our house and work. And they're literally saying, if you don't go, you're not going to get to go hmm. because they're locking the hospital down. Um, wow. And even if I'd stayed, they were like, we're not going to be letting visitors come in. So I'm bawling my eyes out crying that I'm leaving him here in a city. He doesn't know a soul. He's in the hospital by himself. It's not like any of our other towns where I could just drive home and come back. And that was March. I came back March 5th. And I had the most amazing brother-in-law because he would fly out there for me because, you know, somebody had to keep our our home life going. And Brian was on a plane every time he could. And the reason I'm telling you the story about Bonnie is that I got a call from, we wound up renting him an apartment and getting him a place to stay close to the hospital so he could stay there and undergo treatment. And they found him passed out in the parking garage. Wow. And I'm freaking out because they're saying, you know, we're en route to another hospital and I'm like, Oh, you know, Oh shit. They don't have our medical power of attorney. They don't have his advanced directive as living. With, they don't have any of this mm-hmm. paperwork. They don't have me listed as the contact person. Right. And I don't know how to hell to find him because he doesn't have his phone on him because he would gone to take out trash. So he had left his keys and his phone and his wallet all in the apartment. They wound up taking him to the hospital where we had been, and Bonnie happened to be on duty when he was brought into ICU, and she remembered me sleeping on the floor, Mm. and she called me, and she said, we have Bo. Wow. And I about crumbled in the floor crying because there was a moment of sheer panic of, where the hell is he? How the hell do I find He's a 10-hour drive or a two-hour plane ride for me. How do I do this? And at the same time, uh, our beloved Beagle was diagnosed with kidney failure. And I was en route to our house because our vet had called and said, you have to get her to the emergency vet. Because she's got to go under this treatment or she's going to die. So I'm literally in my car. And you've lived in Atlanta. You know Atlanta traffic. Yep. Traffic gods opened up for me that day for me to get home, get her, get her back to the emergency bed. And my brother-in-law flew out there and he would record the conversations. Bo would do the same thing when we were, he was talking to doctors to we, and 
I could hear them talking, and when it was over with, I listened to it, and I called Brian, and I said, did you hear what I heard? And he was like, no, what are you talking about? I said, she kept telling Bo, we need to have a conversation. We need to have a conversation. But he kept saying, but I'm feeling better and I feel like I'm getting stronger. And it was, she was telling him that we couldn't do anything else. Mm. And Brian and their dad and Brian's wife, Heather, we all came to the consensus of we need to bring him home because I'm like, if something happens to him out there, what the hell are we going to do? Right. If we get him home. Um, so he came home on June 5th. He was insanely sick. He wound up being hospitalized June 27th. And they told me that we needed to bring in hospice. Mm. And what you don't think about, Rick, when you bring somebody home to die is you have to bring them in and you have to think about them leaving the next time yep so i was blessed that i had a good friend that came and helped me break our dining room down and set it up it you know had a hospital bed and everything and we were able to bring him home and had family because i had a i'll tell you this beautiful story he was so heavily medicated um and because COVID was still going on, they would only let one visitor in and you had a window that you could be there. And his brother had gone on a Saturday and he was so confused that he thought I had died. Mm -hmm. And he was having a breakdown with his brother about me dying and who was taking care of the dogs. And, you know, why didn't anybody tell him? And, I'm bawling my eyes out when my brother-in-law is telling me the story. So the next day, Sunday, I go in and the nurses are in there and they're doing stuff all around the bed and he's not really paying much attention. And then he sees me and he looks up and it was the most beautiful, I know you smile. Mm. And he's like, babe. I was like, hey, honey. And the nurse got him changed and everything. And then um, she walked out of the room and he looked at me, Rick, and he said, you know, I'm dying. And it's one of those moments, Rick, where you, up until that point, I'd always been, you know what, we've got this, we can do it, we can push through it. And I sat on the hospital bed and I grabbed his hand and I said, you're dying. And I said, baby, we've, we fought. We have done all we can. I said, we can't do anything else. What do you want to do? And he said, I want to go home. We got him home on Wednesday and he passed away Friday night. And it was, I knew my brother and sister-in-law were so amazing to me. And they were like, Jason, we don't want to see you wear yourself out. Maybe we should get help in for you. And I looked at them and I said, guys, there'll be no more Christmases. There'll be no more anniversaries. There'll be no more birthdays. If I, I took a leave of absence from my job, I said, if I exhaust myself to the point of not being able to function, this is the last thing I get to do for him. And the nurse told me at lunch on Friday, just 
beautiful, God bless nurses that work in hospice care. They are a breed unlike anything else. Yep. And she pulled me aside and she said, he's dying. And it's probably maybe a few days to a week. And this was Friday at 12. And I was like, okay. So I called the family, made everybody aware. Um, and there are certain things that I've now learned that I wish I didn't know. Like, for instance, your extremities, your fingers and your toes start going numb. They lose blood circulation. He had sweated profusely, which you do when you go through leukemia. He stopped sweating. Um, his lips started going blue and he got the death rattle. And I was standing at our kitchen island. My brother and brother-in-law and Bo's best friend and I were in our kitchen. No shit. We were like if Bo, Brian had brought a travel mug of some kind of alcohol. And mm. <laughs> he was like, if there's ever going to be a moment to drink, this is it. And I was like, all right. So all we had was vodka and Capri Sun. <laughs> and I mixed the vodka and Capri Sun. And we're standing around the island talking and laughing about Bo. And we're holding the glass up saying, you know, Bo, how much we loved him and everything. And that morning I had had, I woke up and was changing him and everything had told me that I needed to go ahead and tell him it was okay to leave. And I did. And I said, I love you. I said, I hope heaven is full of the hottest fucking daddies on the planet. And I hope you are the newest boy there. And how much I loved him and thanked him for being there for me. And I heard him take his last breath at 1135. I remember hearing him breathe and I looked at my watch and I heard him exhale. Mm. And I walked over and lost it. Yeah. And it was, he died on July 3rd, but technically because the nurse didn't get there till 1230, she pronounced him dead on July 4th, which is kind of a way he would have wanted to go out on a holiday with mm. a bunch of fireworks and uh-huh. over the topness. So um, it was a beautiful experience to be there for him and to go through that with him. And, you know, when you and I, I reached out to you and you asked me what I did, I our beagle died two weeks later mm. and our vet staff knew that Bo had died. They cleared the clinic out at the end of the day. Let me come in. And our veterinarian was like, she knew the whole story, all of the illnesses and everything. And when I got home that night, I just fell apart. Mm. I was like, my whole life has just taken a turn. And to back up a moment, after he died, the next morning, my brother-in-law left and Lori, his best friend, left. And I was sitting on the hospital bed in our dining room. And I said, what the fuck just happened? This two years where I got sick and battled it. Two of our four dogs died. He died. And I'm like, is this for real? And I got into therapy. And it changed my life. And I tell people that losing Bo was my rebirth in a way because you don't, you're not prepared for what the hell happens. You're not prepared for going to probate court three times. And bless the lady that worked there's heart. 
I cried the third time. I was like, I'm what sure. the hell do I need to probate this will? I can't come back again. I was like, you guys are killing me. And calling every credit card and repeatedly saying Mr. Bobin died. Mm. Um, and I'm like, all I want to do is close out credit cards. Right. Um, and I learned so very much about myself and him. And one of the things my therapist taught me was I was angry. And when I say angry, I was a level of angry that I hated everything. I shut myself off from my mom and you'd have to know my mom, but I'm a mama's boy. I don't go a day without talking to my mama. And for four months, I was like, I just need to take a break. I just need to go to work and exist. And through therapy, I've learned how the biggest thing was I was angry at Bo for dying. I was angry for being alone. I was angry for the universe shitting on me is what it felt like. Mm -hmm. And I learned that I was tired of being, I was tired of being a caregiver because that's where I was like, I'm angry with Bo and my therapist were like, you're not angry at Bo. You're angry that he's gone. You know, dating was hard enough in my 40s. And I'm like, now, shit, I got to be 50 and I'm a widower and I'm older. And, you know, this part of us, my story, my illness, all this stuff that happened to me, the person that was there for me through it all, who made me safe is now gone. Mm -hmm. And that was the biggest thing is I stopped feeling safe. But now I've learned how to make myself feel safe. That's a biggie. It's so interesting to hear you share all this because it's actually something that I think all of us, if we would allow ourselves to realize this as gay men, that we've already taken this journey of loss and grief. But we tend to forget that we've done that. And some, for some guys listening today, you're still doing it. You're, you're in that loss and grief of like letting go of who you were so you could be the gay man you're supposed to be. And if we'd all learn to lean into that, we've had some of this experience and I'm not saying death or anything, you know, if you haven't experienced that yet, I haven't experienced that yet with my parents. But what I do know is I lost myself. I let myself die who I thought I was so that I could step into being who I am. And as I was listening to you, Jason, I was feeling that sense of you sharing how much of your own journey you've already done this through, even though you've, you've, okay, you've had enough death in your world to like last a freaking lifetime, honestly. But if I was like coaching someone or coaching you around this, I'm like, lean into that. You've, you've experienced some of this already and draw into that. And I, as you said, you were a spiritual person. That was one of the things that actually I picked up on is that spirituality is coming from a place deep within you. And even the cutting yourself off from, you know, having conversations with your mama and being a mama's boy, there's a purpose in all of that. There's a purpose in appreciation. There's a purpose in allowing yourself to say, I need to grieve. I need to be able to do this. I need to be allowed to feel angry. Maybe the angry was displaced in the wrong direction, but each one of us needs to give ourselves permission to experience these emotions. And what you've so beautifully shared here today is not only your story, but how you have navigated through it. And I'm hoping that anyone listening 
will hopefully call you up and go, I want to meet this guy. I didn't get to see him. I'm telling you, boys, he's sexy. So, you know, he's needing dates. He needs a man in his world. But also to see that there is a way to move beyond. And I know people say, well, that's so trite, Rick. Okay, I get it. But there, there is some movement beyond. It doesn't mean you're done. It doesn't mean you're going to ever let go of Bo and never going to let go of your pups or anything. But you're navigating the movement forward. And that's why I feel like you came and you shared what needed to be shared today is there is a pathway forward mm -hmm. and there is a way to love yourself, you know, and love what the experience has brought to you. There is. And it's, I'm such a different person. Mm -hmm. And somebody asked me once if you had to do it over again, and I said, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I'd go through every single second of it. Yep. Yep. People I ask me that all the time. Mails. Yeah, I still have his voicemails saved on my phone. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you that as they going through the grieving process, I thought that Christmas the first year without him would be hard. It wasn't. New Year's was the one that kicked my ass. Mm. And people asked me why. And I talked to my therapist about it. I said, because how could I celebrate the end of a year that I lost the man I loved? Mm -hmm. I'm going into a whole new year on my own and what I I have a very good friend who told me he lost his husband and he called me after Bo died and he said girl are you sitting down I said yes what's going on he said honey I got to talk to you but I need to make sure you're in the right mind and you'd have to know my friend Jeff but he is the biggest, sweetest bear, and I call him Princess Margaret because we were in a gay bowling league, and he gave me shit. He's like, girl, step aside. The queen's coming up the plate. And I was like, girl, at best, you're Princess Margaret. You are not the queen, so sit down. <laughs> and he called me, and he said, sweetheart, I got to tell you something, and it's going to hurt. And I said, okay, tell me. And he said, first of all, notice the friends that will fall off because that's going to happen. You're going to mm -hmm. lose friends. Yep. And I was like, why do you, you know, and he's like, two reasons. Number one, you show them what could happen to them. They could lose mm -hmm. their man. You're holding a mirror up. They don't want to see. And he said, in the shitty part, you are single. You're now competition too. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, that's like, that was such a stab and yeah. you know, I was like, that's harsh, but honest to God, Rick, it's true. I did lose a lot of friends that, mm -hmm. you know, we, as a culture, we don't prepare ourselves for death. We don't see it as the natural progression mm -hmm. to a life. We're terrified of it. Right. Where I am now, I was terrified of life before. Mm hmm Cancer and losing Bo showed me today, oddly enough, is my 51st birthday. So wow, this is the best way birthday. to celebrate my birthday with you, Rick. Hmm. And last year when I turned 50, I created a list of 50 things to do in my 50th year. So you are the number, you are the 50th thing was to completely an innocent email has turned into something to put on my list, but I've taken cooking classes. I've, joined hiking groups and P-Flag and mm. I did the Porsche experience here in Atlanta where I got to go thrash a Porsche around 
a racetrack for hours. But what I've learned is life is to be lived until that last possible moment. And not only for me, I'm doing it for Bo, for all the things he didn't get to do to turn 50, to see his niece and nephew grow up, to celebrate his dad. And I went on my first date this past April and it was horrible. I was like, nope, not going to do this. Um, because he just said he was a sweet guy, but he was like, how do I compete with Bo? Mm. And I looked at him and I said, nobody's ever going to compete with Bo. He was a one of a kind. Right. I have love in my heart for Other. another man when, mm-hmm. yeah, when the time yeah. comes. Exactly. What I have done is fallen in love with myself and been like, mm-hmm. okay, let's cut the bullshit. Like you say in your promo, let's cut the bullshit and live authentically. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done. Oh, that's awesome. No way fans are buzz. Well, thank you for sharing all that with me and my listeners. And um, if you were close by here, you would be getting a big bear birthday hug because you, you warmed my heart and I know you're going to warm the heart of my listeners. And um I appreciate you, buddy, for being here today. Thank you, Rick. I appreciate you letting me tell our story so it's saved somewhere. That means a lot. That's a wrap for 40 Plus. Gay men, gay talk, where size doesn't matter. We drop our bullshit, get over our screwed up fears, make bold moves, and live life without apologies. Don't forget to join us on Facebook at 40 Plus Gay Men, Gay Talk, where the conversations continue.